Welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, ESMO edition. This is our penultimate episode of this, let's face it, fairly marathon series Josh and I have been recording pretty much every night for it seems like a month. But here we are almost at the end. And today we are talking about gynecological oncology. Often an overlooked subspecialty, certainly a subspecialty that many general oncologists don't have too much to deal with, but it is nevertheless incredibly, incredibly important. Before we start, Josh, my co-host, my friend, how are you? Are you still alive? I'm still alive just, but I agree with you. This has been somewhat of a marathon. I feel it's it's trumped ASCO this year for some reason. Maybe we've just been far more in-depth than what we've done. There's been so many practice-changing trials and second-line treatment options. It's been wonderful for patients everywhere. Very much so. And maybe we're just leaning into this whole idea of us embracing our verbosity and just talking. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Josh, why don't you get us started? Our first study today is the interlace trial. Tell us all about that. I just need to tie up my shoelaces. Let's rock and roll. Make sure you don't tie them together and then faceplant. Ladies and gentlemen, the first article we will discuss or the first session we will discuss is called the interlace trial. It is a randomized phase three trial of induction chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation compared with chemoradiation alone in locally advanced cervical cancer. Looking at the background of this trial, cervical cancer is terrible. Despite having these preventative vaccines, there are over 600,000 cases diagnosed annually and half of these die. 90% of these numbers occur in low and middle income countries. Chemoradiotherapy has been the standard of care for locally advanced cancer for more than 20 years. Improvement in technology has enhanced local control, but 30% relapse and die from metastatic disease. There have been clinical trials looking at induction therapy, and these show conflicting results with a recent meta-analysis showing an association between outcomes and short-term chemotherapy about of an approval of 7% at five years. So the, there was a prior single-arm study looking at weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel followed a chemoradiotherapy, which showed an objective response rate of a whopping 70%. When you look at the trial design, it's essentially the incumbent, which is chemoradiotherapy versus induction chemotherapy for six weeks, followed by standard chemoradiotherapy. People that were allowed to be in this trial had newly diagnosed, histologically confirmed, FIGO stage 1B, 1B2, stage 2, stage 3A, stage 4A, squamous, adeno, adenosquamous, cervical cancer. They were not allowed any lymph nodes above the aortic bifurcation and have good organ function and fit for both of these treatments. That seems like a pretty broad inclusion criteria, Josh. I think it's everyone, really. They wanted everyone to be in this trial. Which is a sign of a good trial. That's it, right? It was like an all-comers. There was multiple stratifications, including site, stage, nodal status, with the primary endpoint being progression-free survival and a secondary primary endpoint of overall survival. A plethora of secondary endpoints exists, and we will talk about that later in 
this episode. But they're everything we always talk about. So quality of life, adverse events, time to subsequent treatment. Looking at the statistical wizardry, they wanted a hazard ratio of 0.65, aiming for about 132 to 168 events for an 80% power. And if we move on to the demographics, average age for both arms was about 46. Most had a good performance status and 80% came from the United Kingdom and then Mexico. Stages involved, 6-7% were stage 2A and stage 2B was about 70% in both arms. Squamous represented the majority of cell type in both these cohorts. Adherence to both the induction chemotherapy in both arms was really, really good, Michael. So the six-week induction chemotherapy, 84% and 92% completed five cycles of induction chemotherapy. So while not all got to that sixth cycle, at least 92% had five cycles. The final cycle was generally omitted in the context of toxicity and non-hematological side effects. Adherence to the cisplatin, 79% in the standard of care arm and 68% in the trial arm. Remember, the cisplatin was part of the chemoradiotherapy. It's somewhat similar to the head and neck sphere where cisplatin is that radio sensitizer for radiation. The main reason for discontinuing was so 13% in the chemoradiotherapy versus 27% in the trial arm with hematological issues being the main one, 34% in the trial arm. And so the reason why is that your bone marrow gets a bit tired, you get bone marrow suppression, and as such, they probably had to delay or stop. Radiotherapy adherence was really good in both arms. So 92% in the standard of care versus 97% in the experimental arm. And the brachytherapy component was pretty similar at 97 and 98% respectively. Looking at the toxicities before we get into the results, Mikey, there were increased adverse events of any grade higher in the induction chemotherapy and the chemoradiotherapy arm, 95 versus 99%. Take that number as you will. It's pretty pretty similar. But we found that hematological toxicities was about over triple in that of the intervention arm along with neutropenia, whereas non-hematological adverse events were similar in both arms. The median progression-free survival. This, as we like to say here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, is the juicy part. The three-year progression-free survival was 75% in the induction chemotherapy and chemoradiotherapy versus 72% in the chemoradiotherapy. The five-year progression-free survival was 73% in the induction chemotherapy and 64% in the chemoradiotherapy. So you're seeing a hazard ratio of 0.65 that was statistically significant, meaning that there is a 35% reduction in the risk of progression or death with six weeks of chemotherapy prior to chemo radiation. Sorry, Josh, can you just go back a bit? Did you say five-year progression-free survival? Yes, that is a five-year progression-free survival. That's That's fantastic. I agree that's fantastic. That's why I'm really trying to emphasize how excited I am about this trial. And I feel maybe this should have been in the plenary because it's a gynecological study. Either way, overall survival, we'll move on, with a median follow-up of 64 months, had a hazard ratio of 0.61. Three-year overall survival was 86 versus 80%, and the five-year overall survival was 80% 
72%. Patterns of relapse were equivocal. Both local and pelvic relapse were similar in each arms. And the total distant relapses were seen in 20% in the standard of care, but only 12% in the experimental arm. So what you're seeing here is better progression-free survival, better overall survival, pretty good tolerability between the arms, purely given that most patients tolerated the induction and the chemo radiotherapy, somewhat similar to that of the standard of care arm, and the outcomes are, are wonderful. I literally wrote woo in my notes, Michael. Is that your professional opinion? Woo is my professional opinion, and hashtag mindblown, I also wrote. Look, I'm really excited. This is a step in the right direction about trying to reduce the risk of recurrence in what is a really, really terrible, terrible cancer. Just from a a side effect of having this type of cancer and it growing, I've had a couple of patients I haven't treated gynecological malignancies in a while and they were young and it was heartbreaking. So I'm so excited to see this as the first discussion in our gynecological oncology ESMO highlights. A really, really positive study. And like you said, in Gyne-Onc, it is so common for these sorts of incredible positive response to be few and far between, and it is really nice to see. Michael, you and I are just both positive people. And I gave you the second best article of our episode today. Do you want to... How generous. Yeah, you're just... How generous. What can I say? You're just innovating when it comes to organising these episodes. I know. I am an innovator. I'm a master innovator. Yes. And in case you aren't getting it, this the name of this second study that we're going to talk about is the Innovative, that's TV 301 study, because we're just, uh, we're just broken records at this point. Broken records, broken <laughs> records full of puns. Anyway, this is a global randomized open label phase three study of tisotamab vedotin. You might recognize the vedotin component from enfortimab vedotin, which is currently gaining accolades and standing ovations and flower petals strewn across its path in the bladder space. But this is tosotumab vedotin, and it's compared to investigators' choice of chemotherapy in second-line or third-line recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer. Background to this, as Josh said, cervical cancer is horrible. It's very preventable, but in the instances where it does occur, it is horrible. Take that and turn the dial up to 11 for recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer because it has an incredibly poor prognosis. It is the fourth most deadly cancer in females. And honestly, I thought that that was underselling it. Like lung cancer, like pancreatic cancer, biliary cancer, progression after first line therapy in cervical cancer is an unmet need. Tisotamab vedotin is an investigational antibody drug conjugate. And I'm surprised, Josh, that you gave me this one, given your undying love of ADCs, but that just shows the generosity of this man. Composed of a tissue factor-directed human monoclonal antibody that is covalently linked to the microtubule-destructing agent MMAE. This has recently received accelerated approval by the American FDA, based on a previously published randomized phase two trial. The study design was thus. Key eligibility criteria were recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer, 
with disease progression on or after chemotherapy doublet with or without bevacizumab and an anti pdl one agent if eligible and available. Patients had to have at least two prior lines of therapy. They had to have measurable disease and they had to have a good performance status. 502 patients were enrolled and randomized one-to-one to receive tosotamab vedotin or clinician's choice chemotherapy, which included topotecan, vinarelbine, gemcitabine, irinotecan, and pemetrexet. Josh, I must confess my ignorance on this point, but I'd be willing to bet good money that there is almost no evidence of efficacy for any of those agents. Nothing that has been released recently, I'm sure. Yeah, they really do stink of uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel, which probably highlights how scarce options are for patients with cervical cancer. The primary endpoint was overall survival, and the key secondary endpoints were progression-free survival, overall response rate, and safety. Patients were stratified by ECOG performance status, whether they had prior bevacizumab or prior anti pdl one therapy, and their geographic region. The study data presented at ESMO was a planned interim analysis. The study authors are wanting 336 overall survival events for a 90% power, and this interim analysis was planned for 252 overall survival events. So in terms of the patient characteristics, the two groups are relatively well balanced according to age and ECOG status. There was a high proportion of of Asian patients, uh, 33 and 35% in the two groups respectively. 63% of patients had squamous histopathology with a mix of adeno and adenosquamous carcinoma, making up the majority of the remainder. There was pelvic recurrence in 10% and extra pelvic metastases in about 90% of both arms. In terms of prior treatment, at least one line of therapy was received in approximately 60% in both groups, two prior lines of therapy in 36% in the TV arm and 40% in the control arm, respectively. Both arms had about a 60% rate of receiving prior bevacizumab, and about a quarter of patients in both arms had received prior immunotherapy. In terms of the overall survival, this is already statistically significant, which is grim, but good. The hazard ratio is 0.70 with a p-value of 0.0038. In terms of numbers, in the TV group, the overall survival was 11.5 months compared to 9.5 months. The 12-month overall survival rate was 48 versus 35%. So grim, but improved in the TV arm. The progression-free survival, again, statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.67. The median PFS was 4.2 months in the TV group versus 2.9, a scant 2.9 months in the control arm. The six-month PFS rate was 30% compared to an abysmal 19%. This benefit was consistent across most subgroups. In terms of the secondary endpoints, the overall response rate was 17.8% for TV versus 5.2% for the control. The CR rate was 2.4 versus 0%. The PR rate was 15 versus 5. Standard disease was observed in 58 compared to 53%. And the disease control rate was 76 compared to 58% in the control arm. The duration response actually favoured clinician's choice chemotherapy, 5.7 months compared to 5.3 months in TV. But that is probably a bit of an outlier and it would be interesting to see why that actually was the case. In terms of treatment-related AEs, 
there were similar rates between the two arms and actually higher numbers of grade 3 events in the control arm. In TV, the most common side effects were conjunctivitis, sensory neuropathy, alopecia, epistaxis, and keratitis. So quite a bit of ocular toxicity, Josh. The adverse events of special interest included, as mentioned, ocular toxicity, peripheral neuropathy, and bleeding. There were very few grade 3 or higher events in this area. So to conclude, TV showed statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in overall survival with a 30% reduction in the risk of death versus standard of care chemotherapy. There was also benefit in progression-free survival and overall response rate. So this is a new standard of care. And Josh said it at the beginning, there have been a ton of these types of uh, presentations at ESMO this year. If you have a patient that is progressing through combined chemotherapy with bevacizumab, and immunotherapy if they happen to be eligible, see about getting tesotamab vedotin because hopefully we will be getting access programs and accelerated approvals for this very high area of need. Too true, Michael, too true. Michael, let's move on to our third and final article of the day, which is the overall survival outcomes for a phase three study called NRGGY004, comparing single-agent olaparib or combination sedirinib plus olaparib to platinum-based chemotherapy in recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancers. Sedirinib, which is a small molecule, TKI with VEGF activity, has been found in combination with olaparib to have activity. And this was in a previous phase two study in those with recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. Thus, a phase three trial was born. Its primary analysis, unfortunately, has already read out and did not meet the primary endpoint of progression-free survival versus platinum-based chemotherapy, but it had a similar PFS and objective response rate. So it wasn't superior, but it was similar. Patients with the germline BRCA mutation were found to respond to both olaparib and sidirinib and olaparib monotherapy and were efficacious in this setting. So this discussion today is looking at the final report of overall survival, which was a pre-planned, not analytical endpoint as the PFS endpoint was not met. I have never seen this before, but here we go. So looking at the trial design, it was patients that had recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer having no prior anti-angiogenic therapy except bevacizumab in the first-line setting, no prior PARP use, and up to one line of non-platinum chemotherapy and must have measurable or valuable disease. The three arms with platinum-based chemotherapy, olaparib monotherapy as the second arm, or sidirinib and olaparib as the third arm. The primary endpoint we've already gone through, but the secondary endpoint is the overall survival and the objective response rates. Patient characteristics were relatively well balanced between the arms, and most patients had never had prior anti-angiogenic therapy. 565 patients were eligible, and they were randomized to three arms. This is where it gets a little interesting. 20 patients chose not to be treated and withdrew consent for follow-up, and 51 patients withdrew consent for survival follow-up, and I believe that was in the control arm, which is already a bit of a red flag. So the overall survival results showed that neither sidirinib plus olaparib or olaparib alone improved overall survival versus chemotherapy in this context of ovarian patients. The updated progression-free survival 
stratifying based on germline BRCA status was similar to previous, and those with germline BRCA mutations did have substantial evidence of clinical activity. But then we moved to the overall survival of the germline BRCA mutations, and neither Olaparib or the combination improved overall survival, regardless of the germline status. Really interesting, Michael, but essentially it's no better than chemotherapy. Toxicities, five events of myelodysplastic syndrome or acute myeloid leukemia, woof. And as a conclusion, and I feel this is a sad way to end this episode with two such stellar results in the cervical sphere, is that neither olaparib or combination therapy improved overall survival in those with relapsed platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. And the interpretation is really complicated by high proportion of those who withdrew consent and even in the crossover arm. And it seems like the people that did progress ended up going on a PARP inhibitor without actually telling the trial. And it sounds like they were not documented as disease progression at that point. That was highlighted. And I think it raises questions about challenges of running a large study and getting everyone to do the right thing. Because even when you're on the standard of care arm, Without a standard of care arm and a good standard of care arm, these trials are essentially worthless. I think you said it best with a single word there, Josh. Woof. Yeah. It is It is a slightly disappointing, well, very disappointing, but also slightly surprising given the, uh, the patient cohort. You would expect a PARP inhibitor to have some efficacy. But as you said, the study design, patients withdrawing consent, that can really, really mess things up. That concludes our gynecology episode. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for joining us on this whole journey. The support that we have had throughout this series has been phenomenal. It's all coming to a head, though, where we come to the best of the best of the best. That is the highlights of the plenary session. As selected by the ESMO committee, we will bring you the best of ESMO 2023. That's coming your way tomorrow. So we hope to see you then as ESMO concludes on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Would you call it Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind's Tour de Force, Michael? I would call it a Tour de Force or whatever the equivalent is in Spanish. Tour de France. (laughs) No, not that. We'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.